0: Aid spending must focus on alleviating poverty British public's trust in charities is declining Funding pressures are increasing Technologies
1: like blockchain are revolutionising our work the
0: SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind
1: Power is shifting to the global south
0: The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development British public's trust in charities is declining. Since revelations of sexual exploitation by charity workers broke earlier this year, the media has referred to a crisis of public trust in NGOs. Some experts say that media, like the Daily Mail, have portrayed a scandal that has inflamed public disdain for the aid sector. Others say that public discontent has been growing into a collective crisis in confidence in charities for some time. At Bond, we've encountered an array of perspectives and research on the relationship between media attitudes and the British public's growing cynicism towards international development. Are these negative stories eroding public trust? Or is there a more complex, threatening storm of public perceptions brewing? We've brought these perspectives together to help you think about how your NGO can navigate through these challenging times. Our first guest on Boncast is Amy Fairburn, Head of Communications and Media at Mercy Corps, a global NGO that empowers people to recover from crisis and transform their communities for good. Hi, everyone. Next, we have Tom Silverman, partner at Humankind Research, an audience research agency that specialises in the nonprofit sector. The agency has conducted research in Daily Mail readers' attitudes to aid and charities. Hi, everyone. And to provide more insight of you, we have Jessica Abrams, Associate Editor at Devex. Hi, everyone. So to kick off, how do each of you think the recent media scrutiny on international development has caused or exacerbated a decline in public support or changed people's perceptions of NGOs? Tom, let's start with you.
1: Uh, well, we have conducted various bits of research over the last few years um, with a, a wide range of audiences, from those more engaged to some seriously disengaged targets, um, and including some recent work on the particular media attacks and stories that have come out in recent years. And what we've seen is actually that particular recent media attacks haven't had as negative an effect as you might have thought from the, the kind of the inside um, and what we've seen is that long-term in disengagement and that erosion of trust that we're seeing has, has been taking place for quite a long time for multiple reasons that I guess we'll be talking about as we go through the um, conversation today, and actually the recent media stories feel like they have reaffirmed already established views rather than changing them significantly. So for the, the more sceptical audiences, we've actually seen that these stories are just being used to justify uncomfortable rejection of, of giving to others in need, um, which is something people often feel a little bit guilty about, even if they are disengaged from the sector. And so they look for these kind of stories to help give them justification for that kind of attitude. Um, and it also allows those skeptics to sort of take down the angels. They, li- they like to be able to call out the charity sector as hypocritical because it makes them feel better about themselves. And they're often not actually interrogating the stories in detail. They're just using them to reinforce their views. Where the, the supporters of the sector um, are actually just often, they're, they're, it's just often reinforcing their defence of the sector rather than challenging that. With the recent Oxfam scandal seen as a problem with a few bad eggs, and they're often more willing to focus on the good work being done by the sector and overlook the stories or see it actually as an attack which they need to defend the sector against.
2: Yeah, I think I would um, agree with Tom. It's certainly something that we've seen happening for the last few years. Our executive director, Simon O'Connell, has been writing about trust and the deficit of trust for the last sort of three, three and a half years. I know the Aid Attitudes Tracker has seen a decline in the number of people engaging with global poverty issues as well. There's been greater scrutiny on fundraising. We had Olive's Law brought in. So it's I think there is a, a closing of the space in terms of um, the fundraising you know, what what happens within fundraisings, not not just in the NGOs, but in the charitable sector as well. Now with GDPR, there's just this greater scrutiny on what organizations like ours are are doing. And that's, in some cases, that's very welcome. But as Tom said, it does give people a stick to to beat us with as well, in terms of of the cynics. Um, What we've also observed is that certainly since 0.7% GNI was brought in, um, that's where we've really experienced the pushback, the negative attitudes towards aid and and what um, development is achieving. And we've had to unfortunately, take a a bit of a a defensive position in terms of defending the type of work that we do, rather than having, as we'll we'll discuss, an open conversation with the media and with the public about how development happens, which is what we want to be doing. But it's really hard when
0: you're being attacked from all fronts as well. Jess, you've been writing about this for some time for DevX. Um, Is this something that you've picked up in um, some of the interviews that you've done with the sector? And also, What do you think um, NGOs need to do in order to tackle
3: this head on? I think from a media perspective, it's really important to remember that the recent scandals have affected a whole range of industries. It hasn't just been the aid sector or the charity sector. Um, And I think an interesting uh, distinction is that a lot of the other sectors that have been affected, Hollywood, um, politics, the media, these are actually sectors that nobody really trusted to begin with. So although we talk about a lack of trust in the charity sector, I think the distinction, um, the reason perhaps that uh, scandals in the charity sector have attracted so much public interest is because there were higher expectations of the charity sector. In a way, it had further to fall. And you can take that as kind of good or bad, but I suppose it does mean that there's a kind of d- a disappointment in the sector that is going to be challenging um, to, to kind of come back from. I think as well, when we talk about public support, public trust, public perceptions, it's useful sometimes to really distinguish what we mean by that, because the public is a huge group of people. And I've been quite surprised myself recently, the amount of people I've spoken to, I've mentioned the Oxfam scandal, and they've said something like, oh, what was that? You know, I saw a headline, I wasn't really sure what it was. I think When you work in the sector or when you work in the media like myself and you're really surrounded by these stories and these conversations, it's easy to imagine that everybody else is kind of equally absorbed in them. It's not always the case, which probably normally is a frustration for charity comms teams because you're trying to engage those people. Uh, In this case, it might be more of a reassurance. Among groups of people who are more engaged with these issues, maybe people who donate to charities, I do think there's generally an understanding that it's a very small proportion of aid workers have been engaging in this kind of behaviour. I don't get the impression that it's sort of everybody's being tarnished with the same brush. But there's obviously generally a feeling that NGOs haven't done enough to tackle these issues, um, which is probably something most of us here would agree with, I think.
1: I think also that although the the recent Oxfam stories haven't necessarily had a massive impact on their own. They come on the back of this sustained um, set of attacks on the on the sector in recent years. The, the Olive Cook stories, executive salaries, corruption, sex exploitation stories all come together and they seed doubts, particularly for the people who are already sitting on the fence, the sort of marginally engaged target, and particularly about the bigger, more distant charities that people don't have an emotional connection with. Because if people have a strong emotional connection to an organisation, that trumps those those um, issues of trust that they may have and part of the problem at the moment is that in the absence of positive stories which people aren't hearing about the sector at the moment because they aren't reaching the mainstream media the the negative stories are filling that gap for people and they're making it harder for supporters of of the sector to to defend it because they don't have the positive stories to to fight back with.
2: I think in addition to just to, to add to that as well, um, the Trust Barometer this year, which comes out in every sort of January, um, I think it was his 18th year this year, highlighted that actually media was the least trusted institution. It's the first time ever, you know, that that's happened in sort of the 18 years of the Trust Barometer's history. And that gives us an additional... Challenge actually, because we use as NGOs without huge marketing budgets, we use earned media in order to communicate with people about crises and about the work that we're doing to help meet the needs in those crises as well. And if people aren't able to tell what is fact and what is fiction, and you know, some of the results, you know, 63% of people who who responded to the trust barometer said they don't know how to tell good journalism from rumor or if a piece of news was produced by a respected media organization. Half surveyed said they interacted with mainstream media less than once a week and 25%, so a quarter, said that they interacted with no media at all. And that is, that's really problematic in terms of us trying to get our messages or even have that, having that two-way conversation with people about the world at large. So that, for me, is kind of one of the, the main underlying problems as well.
0: That's a really interesting point, because also I think that that speaks to this feeling that in the sector, things have changed politically. So it's perceptions of, you know, institutions and the media and the charity sector. Do you think that there's something particular about this time that has almost fueled the, fam- the flames of um, kind of distrust of charities and NGOs, you know, with Brexit and austerity measures and tightening of budgets around the NHS? Has it fueled this discourse and discontent um, that's kind of had a negative impact on how people perceive charities and NGOs? I mean, we've we've certainly seen sort of a, a retreat over the last couple
2: of years as, as the UK specifically becomes, um, or certainly the rhetoric becomes more isolationist um, as we move towards a withdrawal from the EU. Um, I think as well, I mean, I, I was reflecting on this ahead of this podcast. And if you think about it, Syria has been going on for, well, it's in its eighth year now. And I can't recall any other major humanitarian emergency. Well, it is the biggest humanitarian emergency that's happened since World War II. And I can't recall any other time where there's been such a barrage of information from the front lines and we are confronted with it day in and day out and people don't know how to handle it and they don't know what's true and what's what's fiction and social media has sort of exacerbated this and we can reach people in new ways but people can turn off in these ways as well so I think it's it's this changing technology it's changing
3: platforms it's the
2: global politics I think there's a lot of a lot of elements at play
3: Yeah, I think Syria is an interesting example to think about when you mention the issue of lack of trust in the media and so on, because there has been so much. It's it's probably the first humanitarian crisis where this issue of fake news has really come into play and, you know, all the kind of stories around the white helmets and things like this. So I do think Syria is an interesting example of all the different complicating factors that are at play here, lack of trust in the aid sector, but also lack of trust in the media and so many other institutions. I think when y- you know you were talking about this being this kind of barrage of information, we wrote a series of, of features on um, the UK media's relationship with aid recently, and this is one of the issues that came up: the question of kind of fatigue, and. Um, the fact that perhaps the charity sector hasn't really altered its messaging in such a long time. Um, there's been this kind of constant imagery of, you know, needs, you know, starving people and Africa and so on. And there's the f- a fatigue among the public because they kind of think, well, I've been giving and giving and giving and nothing's changing. So is it really working? So I think that's maybe a broader question of how we communicate with the public.
1: I think that's definitely the case and something we've heard really consistently from from all the targets we speak to, even much younger people who frequently reference Band-Aid, which they were actually born after as, as kind of nothing has changed since Band-Aid uh, in terms of the, the kind of the situation in the world and the impact of charities. And I think that's probably a, a problem that's been uh, ongoing for, for years and deepening over time. I think some of the immediate issues we're seeing are driven by some of the, the effects of Brexit and populism at the moment. And Jess and Amy touched on a a couple of these things, that, that society is becoming more binary and international development charities are seen as sitting very much on one side of the political spectrum. The refugee crisis in Europe, we've certainly seen people in groups talking about international development charities tied up in that and being supporters of immigration, which is obviously a really fraught issue at the moment, particularly with some of the more disengaged people with the sector. And there's also just more fundamentally tied into Brexit and this populist mindset, there's a a sense of anti-establishment feeling out there. And big charities are increasingly seen as part of that establishment rather than someone fighting against governments and corporations on behalf of the little man. They're actually seen as sort of part of the status quo. And that's a real challenge for for bigger organisations in in the current climate where they're seen as part of that kind of metropolitan elite.
0: Would... You say that bigger NGOs and charities then need to do something to almost change the way they're perceived by the general public so that they're slightly more, I don't know, so we've got an interesting dynamic at Bond where we've got lots of big NGOs and medium sized organisations and then smaller charities And when we see their relationship with their supporters and compare, it's very different in the sense that smaller charities tend to have almost a closer relationship to their supporters than sometimes the bigger charities do. So is there something that bigger NGOs need to do or act on that can tap into kind of this more closer relationship with supporters? Amy, is that something that Mercy Corps has been looking at at all?
2: Yes. (laughs) And um, in in a word, yes. And I think um, we are trying to respond to the needs of our supporters who want to have that stronger connection with people. So um, certainly last year we ran a a campaign called Human to Human. And this year during the festival, although it was pretty much a washout because of the rain in Edinburgh, but we had a um, a sort of an event, a pop-up event, and um, we had a booth and you could step into the booth and um, speak to someone via Skype uh, in Gaza. And just find out a little bit more about their life. So you know we can't do that all the time, but we are trying to look at ways we can use technology to connect people in a way that is dignified, um, that is authentic, uh, and that's credible, and that meets the needs of of both people on on both sides, if you will. I would want to. I do want to pick up on the sort of small versus big organization, and I think, you know, small organizations are perceived i think to be nimble and more you know cheaper um and things like that but i think there's there's definitely a role for both organisations and i think one of the ways we need to do better as ngos is communicate the complexity of development work and There are some big organizations, only the big organizations can do some of the real systemic change stuff. You know, so I'm just thinking about a big governance and infrastructure program that we have in Democratic Republic of Congo that's going to reach a million people. There's no way that a small organization could have, will have the infrastructure and the administration and the logistics to be able to carry out that multi-year program. So if we're really trying to change the inequity that exists and sort of build stability and peace, then... There's a there's a role for the bigger organizations and the smaller organizations.
3: Yeah, I think that point about communicating complexity is um, a really important one and addresses a lot of the things we've been talking about. So when you think about fatigue, for example, and the sense that, you know, people have been donating money and nothing's changing. Why is nothing changing? Well, actually when you get to the complexity of it, that starts to explain it a bit more. And I think Tom as well, you were you were talking about this issue of charity workers sort of being portrayed as angels who are out there saving the world and you know, there's a sort of satisfaction in in, in shouting hypocrite. But again, if you start communicating some of the complexity of the situation, that image or that stereotype starts to crumble. Um, Crown Agents actually recently released, I think like last week they released um, a virtual reality game where the user has to kind of go through the game choosing where to direct resources at different points in a humanitarian crisis. And and the point is to kind of show, like, we've got limited resources, there's all these different things going on. How do you prioritise and so on? I think that kind of thing... It's difficult to know how you can reach so many people um, with that kind of project and and your um, example of of Skyping people in Gaza as well is a really, really interesting example. Obviously, the challenges always reach, but I think those kind of projects are really interesting in terms of starting to communicate that complexity.
1: Yeah, I think in this context, something that both Jess and Amy have touched on is that need to sort of bring people closer to the work being done and the beneficiary at the end of that. And I think small, particularly local charities, but also small international charities have more ability to sort of give people a sense of proximity to them. And there's there's just a general shift in trust in the world, which Amy touched on earlier, where we're seeing a, a decrease in trust in all big institutions, governments, businesses, Um, media all around the world and a shift to trusting the individual, a a new model of distributed trust and small charities uh are more able to tap into that because people feel they know someone who works in that charity, they've seen the work of it, they have a more tangible sense of the impact, so they can feel they have some personal evidence of it, or they see it on social media where it feels more firsthand. And it's really important that larger charities try and tap into that by bringing people closer to their work. Um, and there's there's lots of different ways that can be done, as as, as Amy and Jess have talked about, and we've seen really positive response to the use of frontline workers in comms. MSF do it a lot and really bring people into their kind of action but also the day-to-day lives of their frontline workers in a way that really builds that sense of knowing what's going on on the ground and makes people feel they have that kind of first-hand evidence that's, that makes them trust organisations more.
0: Do you think maybe the sector is focusing too much on defending itself against these negative stories and they've shifted Their attention away from their mission and why they're in it in the first place because they're so busy defending what they do. Do you think that that's an issue that NGOs are actually facing? And what are your thoughts on that, Amy? It's definitely a challenge
2: that we're facing. Um, I would say it's a resource challenge as well, right? So I would say you know Mercy Corps, uh, you know during the sort of four weeks in February. Um, when the safeguarding coverage was was ongoing, I think I might have must have dealt with between 25 and 30 media inquiries during that period, right? It was yeah. heavy. And there are two media relations people in the UK for Mercy Corps, myself in, based in Edinburgh and someone in London. Um, so the time that I'm spending on those inquiries, I'm not spending on talking about other things um, in terms of raising the profile of what's going on in Yemen, etc. I'm not saying that... Um, we shouldn't respond to those inquiries. I think NGOs, we benefit from taxpayer money. We receive individual donations. So we should be transparent and honest about what happens with that money. We should be transparent and honest about our processes, um, how we're improving them as well. But there is definitely a resource issue in terms of sort of how do we combat the the negativity. And we do. I mean, if you, you only look have to look at this political spectrum um, in the US at the moment, um, how many of us were using fake news three or four years ago on a regular basis in common vernacular? Negative attacks, insults, they stick. If people repeat things often and often enough, they stick. So we do have to respond to them. But yeah, uh, what what sort of, what's the balance in terms of responding to them and and trying to to push out or to have that more positive engagement is, yeah, it's difficult.
3: I think it's a mixture. You know, clearly these stories need to be responded to. They need to be responded to robustly and transparently. But aside from specialist outlets like DevEx. Obviously, we're really following um, the changes that are being made, the reform processes. For most mainstream outlets, that's sort of more detail than than they need. The public really just wants to know that something's being done about this, that this is being taken seriously, and it's going to be better in the future. So if you can just communicate that message and then move forward, I think that's probably the best we can do.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we've we've really seen is that uh, when you try and fight the rational with the rational, people feel very challenged in their views and that af- actually often causes people to double down and become more entrenched in their viewpoints rather than rather than shift around to your point of view. And so rather than fighting the rational with the rational, we need to change the conversation and focus on the positive stories about the sector wherever possible. Um, and, and that's a real issue for the sector at the moment that we constantly see that, that, that the stories aren't being told of the positive work being done and the long-term impact that has been achieved. And there's so much happening that could be talked about, but that people just aren't aware of the, the, the kind of reduction in poverty over the last 30 years, eradicating diseases, all these kind of things. When you actually sit down with a group of people from across the spectrum and say, what do you think international development has achieved and all that aid money that's that's been distributed around the world? people have no idea. They can't give you one example of where it's had a positive impact. And that's even sort of progressive millennials through to Daily Mail readers. People just have no idea. So it's really important that those stories are, are told and that people get that sense that this isn't just an endless cycle of perpetual need with no progress being made, that idea that nothing's changed since Band-Aid, but actually that we are, we are making progress and that the money invested now is having a sort of knock-on effect that will change the future for people rather than just address a very immediate, urgent need.
0: So do we need to get charities to radically change their ways of working in order to regain public support? Should we be thinking more about um, development rather than just aid in order to tell those more complicated stories of change? Because aid is only one aspect of what we do, and yet that's the thing that tends to get most of the headlines, whereas development it's less of a sexier topic to talk about in a way, you know, telling the general public about the amazing changes that we've made in terms of tackling tax havens and um, those types of stories of success. Is that kind of more of the narrative that we need to start thinking about as a sector? I think we need to use language that people
2: understand. So, you know, I think people see foreign aid and, and they won't distinguish between aid and development. And I think for too long... Myself included, I've worked in the sector for a while. We have, we, you know, it's been said already, we're insular. Um, we spend a lot of time talking to ourselves. We spend a lot of time thinking people understand what we're saying. Um, and often they don't, not because it's utterly complicated, but because we're just not saying it in a way that they they understand. You know, they don't work in the sector. So I think absolutely need a shift. We need absolutely a shift in our language. We need a shift in the way we communicate with people. We've just talked about the the decline in trust in traditional media. We need to look at new ways of reaching people and engaging people in a manner that they understand and that they want to hear. And I don't think we've necessarily spent the time or have the resources or evaluated the data and the research enough as, NGO, as an NGO sector in order to do that. And that really needs to be our next step.
1: From what we've seen, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. It's it's about talking to people in a language that, that they understand that your audience really engages with. Also finding the right channels to speak to them, because if you're talking to cynical Daily Mail readers, who I keep referring to because we did the research to them, but actually they're a really valuable group of people for the sector because they're actually quite wealthy, older people who do give a lot of money, then, then trying to talk to them in other channels isn't, isn't cutting through and you need to be talking to them in their space rather than expecting them to come to your website to read your stories. But also that, yeah, the challenge of, of delivering stories in a way that people can easily relate to. And the, the same goes for millennials um, when we've done research with them, where they're getting so much of their information from social media in sort of headline sized chunks rather than reading the deeper stories about systemic issues and the longer term solutions. There needs to be essentially work done to understand how best to, to shift those targets in a way that really talks to them in their own language.
3: I'd agree with all those points. As somebody who only started covering the sector about two years ago, I still remember how baffling it was. I've suddenly come across resilience and capacity building and IOM and WHO. And it's, it's really, really confusing. So I think using... Plain language and making sure we're communicating clearly is a really good first step. Thinking about the kind of recent media scandals, especially, as I was saying, I think it's less about kind of radically changing the way that charities work, because honestly, most people aren't really paying attention to that. Um, I think it's just about making sure that these scandals aren't happening again, because one scan, you know, news stories, they don't tend to stick Um In a few years' time, will the majority of the public remember what the Oxfam scandal is? Probably not. Um, But the more scandals there are like this, the more these perceptions get cemented. So I honestly think the best thing the charity sector can do is just make sure they improve their processes so these things aren't happening anymore and the positive stories can then get the limelight instead of the negative ones.
1: I think the other issue at the moment is that the sector is actually perpetuating some of the negative view of it with the fundraising comms that's so dominant in most people's minds when they think about what the uh, sector does and and those comes the kind of the stock in trade imagery of sort of desperately needy children which are quite heartbreaking for everyone they essentially trade in in the kind of emotions of hopelessness and helplessness and guilt a set of negative emotions that don't help to build a longer term connection to sector that people want to engage with and we need to somehow shift out of that cycle and we understand obviously the need to raise money and the, the imperative there but there's a really a real need in the longer term to shift to uh, stories of, of sort of impact and inspiration and hope that people can more positively engage with.
2: Yeah, because we've seen, I mean, it's, um, I don't know if it's, it was your research, Tom, but I have have seen research that shows that they bring in, it brings in money in the short term, but longer term, we're really eroding the trust, right? And you've mentioned it, Jessica, in terms of, um, and Tom, in terms of the fatigue, and people think they're just sort of throwing money um, all the time after crisis after crisis and not actually sort of yeah, improving the situation.
1: And I think if there's one thing to take away from today when we think about the impact that the media has had and we look at external factors, it's actually to look back at the the, the way we're perpetuating some of these issues from, from our internal comms in a way that we can change more easily than fighting some of those media stories.
0: Absolutely. So if there was kind of two bits of advice that you could give um, CEOs of big charities, medium charities, small charities in terms of what they could be doing to make sure that they're doing the positive work that organisations do day in, day out justice. What comms advice would you give them?
2: I would say stop being so insular and speak to people like they're people, rather than as potential donors or supporters. Um, have a conversation. Uh, we're in the business of helping people, and sometimes that can be lost. Um, so communicate on people on issues that people understand and in a way that reaches them, which I think we've all we've all said. Um, and the other one, which is a little bit more tricky, is um, if this was to a CEO or sort of an executive team, give your fundraisers some time and latitude to trial new ways of communicating with the public. Uh, user data that is available. We've got some great research out there. So, you know, what what can we do and what kind of latitude can they give in terms of um, fundraising in a a different way?
3: Uh, Yeah, a bit of a facetious answer, I suppose. But I would say improve your safeguarding processes so that we can all move on from this and start talking about something else. And then building on what you were saying, Amy, as well. I think it's just about being a bit more creative with the way that you're communicating your work as well and trying to get away from these stock, um, stock images that Tom's been talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, my first one, uh, unsurprisingly, is is the same as Amy and Jess's, that, that it is about moving away from that constant cycle of, of fundraising need. And... Um, as Amy says, giving fundraisers a bit more latitude to think longer term. And actually, we work a lot with corporate clients on their sustainability work. And they have gone through a similar or some, some of the more successful corporates focusing on that sort of thing have had to go through a similar process of instead of reporting quarterly, reporting every six months or even annually to give them the latitude to invest money in more sustainable programs rather than looking constantly at the turnover of profit. Um so that would be that would be a really key thing to think longer term in the way you're communicating. And the second one is actually about this focus on trust, which is the word that's constantly used within the sector. There's always this focus on, on trust and whether trust is going up and down. But we actually feel that trust doesn't stand for that much if people aren't emotionally connected to a, an organization or a cause or, or what the sector's doing as a whole. And we've seen time and time again these rational arguments, the attacks on the sector, fall away if people have an emotional connection, which, a connection which trumps that rational attack Um, and so the really important thing to think about is instead of what can we tell people to improve brand trust is to to focus on what can we do to build a stronger emotional connection with our work and our cause and and what we've achieved.
0: I completely agree and also there are so many amazing things that charities actually do and this idea that the Daily Mail doesn't pick up on those stories isn't true because if I I think it was just a couple of days ago they wrote a really good article about child marriage and child brides and they did mention some of the solutions to those issues as well in that article so there are stories that these kind of typically seen right-wing you know or centre-right outlets there are things that they're interested in when it comes to development and aid stories but it's actually about the issue as opposed to the sector so
2: can I add one more point? As Go for well? it. I guess I feel quite strongly about this, especially with Jessica sitting there on my left, but let's not treat media as the enemy as well. You know, let's step back from the battleground um, with, with them. I think between us, NGOs and the media are vital for building the social, social capital um, and shared values that ha- actually help hold communities and society together. Um, and I think we need a transparent, honest NGO sector and civil society, just as we do need a very robust um, media as well um, to, to have that shared values and that shared society.
1: I'd absolutely agree with that from what we've seen in response to particularly the recent Oxfam crisis, that part of the damage done was where Oxfam seemed defensive rather than welcoming the scrutiny. And, and that's what people really want to see. And, and Trump and the kind of issues with media in the US have obviously amplified this even further, that everyone Um, now believes that that the media has a really important role to play. Even if people don't entirely trust the media, they they feel that it's an incredibly valuable um, part of society in scrutinising these bigger organisations and establishments. And, And it's really important that the sector embraces that rather than feels like it's pushing back against it.
3: Yeah, one of the points I was going to make earlier when you were talking about attitudes towards larger international NGOs is that in a way these uh, these organisations are seen as the safe option because um, they're bigger and they're, they're already under a lot of scrutiny. If you want to donate but you don't really want to do a lot of research then it's kind of the safe option to give to the Oxfams or the Mercy Corps or the MSFs because you feel like well people are already paying attention to that and if something was wrong I'd know about it. And in a way the Oxfam scandal proves that. It proves that all the accountability mechanisms are working. So uh, in a way it should improve trust in in how, how all of this is functioning.
0: I completely agree. In a way, the sector gains as a whole by having a very um, robust media scrutiny on how we work in practice, even if it's the bigger organisations that have to take the hit. Everyone improves collectively um, as long as we take it seriously and put in the measures and steps to make sure this doesn't happen again. So I'd just like to say thank you to all of our guests for a a very stimulating and interesting conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Recently, some individual NGOs have been put under intense media scrutiny over the safeguarding stories. But it's important to say that we as a sector can gain if we all raise our standards on safeguarding. Bond's working with our members to make sure that this goes beyond the conversation that's taken place in this room and turns into action. Sign up to our newsletter or go to our website to get more insights on public attitudes to development and to connect with other professionals.